You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 201, Treason in Philadelphia. When the British left Philadelphia in June 1778, they took with them many of the Loyalists who had worked with them during the occupation. Those refugees had to leave behind virtually all of their property and begin a new life in New York or elsewhere in the British Empire. Many Loyalists, though, opted to remain in Philadelphia and take their chances by appealing to the mercy of the returning patriots. Philadelphia was under martial law. Major General Benedict Arnold took command of the city almost immediately after the British evacuation. This was Arnold's first command since Saratoga. While Washington's army endured Valley Forge, Arnold had been recuperating from his leg wound, suffering terrible pain and fighting off the attempts of doctors to amputate. He spent several months in New York, then returned to his home in Connecticut. In May of 1778, about a month before the end of the British occupation in Philadelphia, Arnold came to Valley Forge. General Washington had been encouraging Arnold to remain home. Due to his injury, Arnold's leg was now several inches shorter, resulting in a permanent limp. He was still in terrible pain and could not walk without crutches. Even so, Arnold wanted to play a role in the spring campaign. Washington, having just gotten through the Conway cabal, was happy to have a top general whose loyalty he could trust, but he knew Arnold's body was not yet ready for the rigors of a military campaign. So Washington urged Arnold to take command in Philadelphia. The Continentals needed to return the city to its former functionality. Philadelphia had been a town of thousands of artisans making all sorts of necessary military goods. Arnold needed to restore order in the city quickly. Washington also needed Arnold to prevent warfare from breaking out between the Patriot radicals in the city and the Loyalists whom the British had left behind. Based on its Quaker tradition, many in Philadelphia and the surrounding area avoided taking a vocal side in the conflict and just wanted to keep their heads down and continue to make a living. They were not always happy with British policies but they believed they had a duty to obey the law. When the Americans controlled Philadelphia in the early years of the war, they complied with the laws passed by the radical patriots. But when the British took control, they were happy to comply with the new British authorities. When those British left, the radical patriots wanted these people punished as collaborators. Much of the continental leadership, however, wanted to put these civilian workers back to productive work. One of Arnold's first actions was to implement Washington's orders to haul all trade out of the city in order to prevent Loyalists from removing valuable supplies which would likely find their way to British-occupied New York. Congress had placed a complete ban on the sale, transfer, or removal of all goods, and General Arnold posted guards at key locations to enforce these restrictions. For a region having suffered from the deprivations of war, Arnold did not make a good first impression. He arrived in Philadelphia in a coach and four, 
then proceeded to occupy the Penn Mansion, the former home of the colonial governor and most recently occupied by General William Howe. The British had stripped the mansion on their way out, so Arnold spent a small fortune refurbishing the house, buying new furniture, and hiring servants. For the people of Philadelphia, many of whom were starving, and under a ban from engaging in any business, this extravagance seemed outrageous. Arnold had been a wealthy merchant before the war, but the intervening years had destroyed his business. His fleet of ships was long gone. Much of his personal funds that he had spent on behalf of the army was never repaid. Congress had not even bothered to pay his salary in the two and a half years that he had served. Arnold seems to have decided that he was entitled to make a little money from his position and to resume a comfortable life. There was a great deal of goods held in Philadelphia that the British had not removed or destroyed. Because of Congress's ban, much of it was still being held in warehouses. Some enterprising Philadelphia merchants had purchased luxury items at pennies on the dollar from desperate residents or from British soldiers who looted them and were leaving town. Arnold made some, shall we say, questionable deals by granting a pass to one ship whose owner had agreed to sell him thousands of pounds worth of goods at bargain prices. Arnold also cut deals with a number of Tories to sell certain goods that were not needed by the army, but were in danger of seizure by Pennsylvania officials. Again, Arnold bought these goods at pennies on the dollar, since the Tory merchants had to do that or else lose everything to public seizure. Once Arnold owned them, the goods were no longer Tory-owned and could not be seized by the state. Later, some of these goods ended up at Little Egg Harbor in New Jersey. Arnold had received advance word of the planned British raid there and sent a train of Teamsters using government wagons to bring back to Philadelphia many of the personal items that he had purchased before the British could seize them. In short, Arnold was using the power of his office for private gain. While this would violate a whole host of ethics laws today, Arnold's defenders argue that his actions were not illegal at the time. The legality of much of it was actually debatable. Congress was continually on the lookout for war profiteers, especially people who benefited from holding a public office. At the time all of this was happening, delegates were in the middle of the Silas Dean hearings, investigating the former delegate to France for allegedly profiting while serving abroad. Other important leaders, including congressional delegates like Robert Morris and Robert Livingston, were already under scrutiny. So Arnold was playing a very dangerous game. The Continental Congress, though, was perhaps not Arnold's greatest threat. The radicals in the Pennsylvania state government were thirsting for some revenge. Most of Pennsylvania's patriot leaders lived in and around Philadelphia. When the British took over, they took over all of the property left behind by known patriots. The British looted and destroyed many of their houses as they evacuated. This was not much different from the rest of Philadelphia, which saw most of the city in terrible condition from the British occupation. The big exception to the destruction was the good neighborhoods where wealthy Tories still lived. These were wealthy men of substance 
who made nice with the British leadership in an attempt to keep their families and properties intact. Some of them hosted British officers and largely were able to maintain their homes in good condition. Patriots were not happy that some folks were so much better off because they had refused to stand up for the Patriot cause. One member of the Continental Congress proposed that everyone who remained in Philadelphia during the occupation be put under house arrest and forced to pay a collective tribute of $100,000 to the cause. Another suggested that about 500 Tories in the city be hanged and their property be seized and sold. The latter suggestion came from Joseph Reed, who was not only a delegate to the Continental Congress, but who also sat on the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania. At the time, the council did not have a president because Thomas Wharton died about a month before the British evacuation. Vice President George Byron served as acting president. The entire council, though, seemed to be looking to bring some sort of punishment on what they regarded as collaborators, and also to raise some much-needed cash in the process. Joseph Reed would be elected president of Pennsylvania in December 1778. Even before his election, he became one of Arnold's greatest adversaries. You may recall that Reed was a former aide-de-camp to George Washington. The two men parted ways a short time after Washington read a letter back in 1776 indicating that Reed had thought that General Charles Lee should replace Washington as commander-in-chief. Reed remained active as a colonel and played a pivotal role in the attack on Trenton. Congress offered him a commission as a brigadier general, which General Washington urged him to take, but Reed turned it down. Although Reed remained an officer in the Continental Army, he left active duty to serve both in Congress and in the Pennsylvania state government. There, Reed quickly became a major player in Pennsylvania politics. The former lawyer from Philadelphia turned down an offer to become the state's chief justice. As I said, he did take a position in the Continental Congress and on the Executive Council. Reed also seemed to be a hardcore idealist. Like many leaders, he had lost a personal fortune as a result of the war. General Howe had once offered Reed a 10,000-pound bribe to become an advocate for reconciliation. In other words, for the Loyalist side. Reed turned it down cold and reported the incident. Reed strongly supported the radical effort to punish any Tories who remained in Philadelphia. It wasn't just the leadership that wanted punishment. The people of Philadelphia were demanding it. Many of the wealthier families who got through the British occupation unscathed now found rocks being thrown through their windows were being assaulted as they walked down the street. Many moderates were concerned that things could quickly spin out of control and into a reign of terror. But given the popular sentiment, it seemed that there would have to be some examples made. In the end, 23 men were indicted by a Philadelphia grand jury and put on trial for treason against the state by collaborating with the enemy. Ten more were indicted for other capital crimes. The courts, however, tended to be dominated by moderates. Most of the accused were wealthy men who hired good defense lawyers. These lawyers knew who to put on the jury who did not want to see their neighbors die for doing something that they had to do during the occupation. 
In the end, only four were convicted of treason, and two of those were pardoned. The unlucky two that were not were both Quakers, Abraham Carlyle and John Roberts. Abraham Carlyle was one of the first defendants brought to trial. The prosecution accused the prosperous elderly carpenter of serving as a guard at the city gates during the British occupation. This meant that he had accepted a commission, worked in the service of the British Army, and was therefore a collaborator and a traitor. The defense argued that the prosecution could not produce a written commission, but several witnesses testified that they had seen him guarding the gate. A jury found Carlyle guilty and sentenced him to be hanged. He appealed the case to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which upheld the conviction. Later, several people, including Chief Justice Thomas McKean, petitioned the Supreme Executive Council to commute the sentence, but the council refused to do so. The grand jury also indicted a miller named John Roberts, charged with recruiting men to join the British Army. The defense argued that the prosecution could not produce one person who actually enlisted as a result of Roberts' efforts. But Roberts had confessed that he tried to recruit people and other witnesses testified to his efforts. A jury found Roberts guilty and sentenced him to death. Like Carlyle, he appealed to the Supreme Court unsuccessfully and petitions to the Supreme Executive Council were denied. On November 4, 1778, both men were brought before a large crowd in the center of town. They were led to a public gallows and hanged. Both Carlyle and Roberts were older men who were well-known and liked in their communities, politics aside. Their guilt seems pretty clear, but it was not terribly different from perhaps hundreds of other men. It seems they were chosen as examples in part to mollify the radicals in the city. Following their executions, cries for more treason trials fell off. Even so, for many Tory families, the climate of fear remained. Many families who had successfully steered through the British occupation were still concerned about what might happen to them. One of these families was the Shippen family. Edward Shippen was a well-established jurist and a member of the Philadelphia establishment. He was a direct descendant of a different Edward Shippen who helped establish the city with William Penn and who had served as the city's first mayor. Before the war, Shippen tried to stay out of politics. Although he was opposed to mob actions, he also made every effort to bend when the public demanded it. During the Stamp Act, Shippen suspended his legal practice in order to avoid being attacked for using the stamped paper necessary for such practice. At the same time, he was part of the colonial government establishment. He sat on the Admiralty Court for a time and also served on Britain's Provincial Council under colonial governor John Penn. Shippen also worked with Benjamin Franklin in founding the Juno Discussion Group, the city's first subscription library, and the American Philosophical Society. When the war began, Shippen's positions in the colonial government targeted him as a potential Tory. He tried to lay low, even moving out of Philadelphia to a country home in New Jersey for a time. Shippen was not an outspoken Tory, but he did refuse to sign a loyalty oath 
to the radical new state constitution in 1776. As a result, he once again had to suspend his legal practice. Edward Shippen had one son and four daughters. One of his daughters, Elizabeth, was engaged to a Continental officer who was a British prisoner in New York. All of his children, in their late teens or early 20s, were still living at home when the war began. In December 1776, Shippen's son, who was also named Edward, traveled to Trenton, New Jersey, in an attempt to join the British Army. He was there at Christmas when the Americans attacked the city and took him prisoner. George Washington personally freed the boy and allowed him to return home, but the incident did nothing to weaken suspicions about the family's loyalist tendencies. When the British Army arrived in Philadelphia in 1777, Shippen used his prior position in the colonial government to stay on good terms with the British. Judge Shippen did not stick his neck out or play any role in the occupation that would get him targeted as a collaborator. However, his youngest daughter, Peggy, who was age 17 at the time, became active in the Philadelphia social scene, going to dances and other events with young British officers. She spent a concerning amount of time with a dashing British captain by the name of John Andre. The shipping girls were, by all accounts, attractive and active in Philadelphia society. Shippen complained that Peggy spent the inflation-adjusted equivalent of well over $1 million on clothes in just one year. Like her sisters, Peggy was well-educated and well-read in matters of poetry, philosophy, and even politics. She was comfortable among the social elites and enjoyed an exciting social life. All of that ended for Peggy when the British evacuated. The Patriots looked at the Shippens as loyalists. While, as I said, none of them had done anything that would bring criminal indictments, the fear of property confiscation or other random attacks by the populace still loomed. In the three years following the British evacuation, the state ended up naming 487 families accused of loyalism. Now, few of these were imprisoned but most had their property seized and were expelled from the state. Recognizing how precarious his position had become, Shippen agreed to take the Pennsylvania loyalty oath, but beyond that he needed to cultivate some connections with powerful patriots to provide cover against potential attacks. General Arnold had dined at the Shippen home before the occupation. He knew Judge Shippen, and had met Peggy when she was just 16. Arnold's wife had died in 1775, and his three children were being raised by his sister in Connecticut. Once Arnold became military governor, his sister and children joined him in Philadelphia. Arnold held teas and other social gatherings for all of Philadelphia's elite society, including those who were suspected loyalists. Shippen welcomed the relationship even after Arnold proclaimed his love for the 18-year-old Peggy in September of 1778. Shippen was reluctant to allow such a relationship, but did not stand in the way of it. Arnold's relationship with the Shippens and other suspected Loyalists may have given some cover to the Loyalists, but it also greatly damaged Arnold's reputation among radical patriots. 
They saw Arnold as a corrupt leader, enriching himself from his government position and providing protection to Tories who had collaborated with the British just a few months earlier. Arnold, in turn, grew to despise these radicals, who he saw as persecuting good people, mostly because they were wealthy and had made efforts to protect their property in these difficult times. On November 3, 1778, the night before the hanging of Carlisle and Roberts, Arnold held a public reception at City Tavern, personally inviting leading Quakers and accused Loyalists to attend. In some ways, Arnold may have been oblivious to the local politics and the trouble brewing against him. As a military officer in the Continental Army, he did not have to answer to state officials. Arnold was focused more on his next career opportunity. He was actually exploring the idea of being appointed an admiral of the Continental Navy and sailing off to the Caribbean to capture some island colonies for America. Now, this was not actually as far-fetched as it might sound. Even though he was an army general, Arnold had captained several ships in battle already during the Falkor campaign and might very well have made a good naval commander. Further, Navy captains kept a share of the capture of prize vessels, which might have provided Arnold with a legitimate way to earn some money. The Continental Congress did not dismiss the idea because of any lack of faith in Arnold's ability. Rather, the delegates figured that the French would handle all naval issues, and there was no need to spend more money on building up a Continental Navy with those related costs. Further, France was planning to capture British colonies in the West Indies for itself. Any plans for the U.S. to begin capturing islands might have created a rift in the alliance. I only mention this to show where Arnold's head was at the time. He was looking to his own personal career future, which had nothing to do with the radicals in Philadelphia who complained about his ethical behavior. Besides, there were many Pennsylvania leaders who supported Arnold. Conservative patriots, including Militia General John Cadwallader, Congressional Delegate Robert Morris, and Chief Justice John McKean, spoke approvingly of Arnold's efforts to restore order in the city and protect the wealthy from what they saw as mob rule. But to radicals like Joseph Reed, Timothy Lee Matlack, or Thomas Paine, Arnold was a corrupt counter-revolutionary who was standing in the way of real reform and true Republican government. Arnold, of course, was used to controversy and criticism, and he continued to act as he saw fit. Meanwhile, the radicals only grew in power. In December 1778, Reed took office as president of Pennsylvania. One of his primary missions seemed to be to bring down Benedict Arnold. The fighting would only grow between the two factions through 1779, but that will have to be the topic of a future episode. Next week, we're going to head back up to upstate New York, where the Tories and Iroquois warriors stir up more fighting at the Cherry Valley Massacre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter. Thanks also to Kurt Avard, author of the historical novel First Do No Harm, for his support at the Robert Morris Circle, as well as longtime Patreon supporters John Wallers and Robert Onsey. Thanks also to one-time gifts from Jason Springfield, Keith Thompson, and Jason Cole via PayPal, and from Michael McKenna via Venmo. I wanted to mention a few other things I'm planning for fans of the podcast. Some folks have suggested holding a live meetup in Philadelphia this summer. We could meet at Independence Hall, walk around Old Town, and just talk about the revolution. If that sounds interesting to anyone, please email me or join the discussion on our Facebook group for more details. For folks who are not in the Philadelphia area, I may also hold some sort of Zoom-style video call where you can ask me anything or we can just chat about history, podcasting, whatever. Again, if this sounds interesting to you, please let me know. One other project I hope to have done by next week is a virtual store. You will be able to buy American Revolution podcast t-shirts or other items. I've got a number of American Revolution designs already set up and am looking to do some more. Again, I hope to have some more details on that next week. Now, this week, I covered some of the growing divides among Americans brought about by the war. Now, this is a common dynamic that we see in virtually all revolutions. It starts with a large group of people who are all unhappy with the status quo and want to start a new government. Once the old government is overthrown, you have, I guess what you'd call moderate revolutionaries, for lack of a better term, who want to overthrow the old but only make a few changes and keep most things the same, only with a new set of leaders. Then you have the radical revolutionaries who want to change everything and move more quickly toward their version of a future utopia. And those folks are willing to crush anything that might prevent or slow down that change. That is what we see brewing in Philadelphia after the British leave town. This is not a fight between loyalists and patriots. The loyalists were gone with the British. Men like Joseph Galloway or the Allen brothers had gotten behind the British 100%. They had abandoned their homes in Philadelphia and become refugees in New York. The fighting in Philadelphia focused on issues between moderate revolutionaries like Robert Morris, John Cadwallader, or Thomas McKean. These were men who were wholeheartedly devoted to American independence. At the same time, they were men of wealth and power who did not want to overturn the social and economic order that benefited them so much. They simply wanted to replace British leaders with local leaders who would implement some changes, but largely keep Pennsylvania running as it always had. In the other camp, 
we have radical revolutionaries. These included men like Joseph Reed, Thomas Paine, or Timothy Matlack. Now, these men were professionals, but they didn't come from the very top of the colonial establishment. They were idealists who saw the revolution as an opportunity for real change on a political, economic, and social level. They saw moderates as potential counter-revolutionaries who would try to undo many of their more radical moves. Now, these two groups were divided on how to deal with civilians who collaborated with the enemy when the British occupied Philadelphia. The moderates mostly wanted to forgive and forget. They knew that the accused collaborators were not ideologues. They were people trying to survive and hold on to what they had. When the Patriots were in charge, these folks worked for the Patriots. When the British were in charge, they worked for the British. These people just didn't want to be overrun by events in this dangerous and unstable time. The moderates realized that these people were productive members of society, they helped keep the economy going, and could be put to work for the patriot cause and the war effort generally. The radicals saw them differently. These were collaborators who were a danger to the revolution. The radicals knew that the British leadership counted on most colonists behaving in this way. The British army would assert control, and these folks would just go along, allowing London to exploit the colonies as long as the colonies got to hold on to a few crumbs. This was the attitude that allowed tyranny to succeed. Therefore, the radicals wanted punishment for these folks who did not resist British rule and put themselves before the good of the country. Now, in some revolutions, this sort of purifying force leads to a massive bloodletting. I'm thinking of the French Revolution's Reign of Terror or the Russian Revolution's Communist Purges. It never went that far in America. We saw a few collaborators made examples and hanged, which I discussed today, but we did not see hundreds or thousands of collaborators being sent to the gallows. The moderates largely won that fight and kept things mostly as they had been before the British occupation. For many years, though, no one was certain that things were going to stay that way. Both revolutionary factions jockeyed for control. And it was against that backdrop that General Benedict Arnold served as military governor and became a target of the radicals. They couldn't attack him for being a moderate, but they could attack him for corruption and profiteering from his position. And I'll get into that more in an upcoming episode. If you want to learn more about the divisions between radical and moderate revolutionaries, my book recommendation this week is Tom Paine and Revolutionary America by Eric Foner. This is not a traditional biography. It looks at Thomas Paine, but mostly in the context of the radical politics of Philadelphia during the American Revolution. It's an interesting look at the radical side of the revolution. The author, Eric Foner, is a former history professor from Columbia University. He retired a couple years ago. He's written dozens of books on various topics in American history, although most of them revolve around the Civil War. His book about Paine is one of his earliest, first published in 1976, and the book has been through several reprints since then. If you don't want to buy it or want to check it out before buying a copy, you can borrow an ebook version of it on archive.org. But if you want to learn more about revolutionary politics, Tom Paine and Revolutionary America is a good choice. My online recommendation looks at the other side of things, 
it focuses on one of those families who was just trying to survive the war any way it could. It looks at the Shippen family and their attempts to navigate uncertain times while protecting their wealth and status. It's called The Edward Shippen Family, A Search for Stability in Revolutionary Pennsylvania by Kenneth Kimsey. As you might guess from the title, it looks at the Shippen family and how they attempted to get through the American Revolution. It was originally written as a Ph.D. dissertation in 1973 and then published as a book. I've published a link to the original dissertation, which you can download as a free PDF from the University of Arizona website, but you can also borrow an e-copy of the published book on archive.org. You can, of course, search for the book yourself, but I've also provided direct links that I've included on my website and blog. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>